You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. Well, this episode is definitely for the adventurous. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of heights, but today's guest is a pro at getting high up and jumping with twists and turns into the water far below. Joining me is professional cliff diver Ellie Smart, who will be competing in the Red Bull opening event for 2022 season in Boston on June 4th. If you are in Boston, it is going to be such an incredible event and tickets are available for that. Ellie tells us how to get tickets later in the show. If you aren't in Boston, watch live via the Red Bull site. Links to that are in the show notes. Ellie and I talk about gender equity in the Red Bull series, fear and safety, training, starting a big project with small steps, competing in front of crowds and cameras, and all the work she does outside her diving career. As always, our conversation is great for sporty fans, but also there are so many good bits to translate to life outside of sport. It was so fun talking to Ellie, so let me introduce her. American Ellie Smart is a professional high diver competing in the Red Bull Cliff Diving World Series. She started competing in the World Series events in 2017 on the rough Irish coast of Innismore and earned a permanent place in the women's lineup for the 2019 season with a third place at the FINA World Cup. After a bumpy start in her debut year as a permanent diver, she dove onto the podium in Mostar for the very first time. Then, in 2021, consistency was key as the American never dropped below sixth place to maintain her place in the women's top eight. Ellie started her career as a diver at five years old when she competed in her first diving meet. She then went on to compete as an NCAA diver as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. Ellie is infectiously energetic and ambitious. In addition to being a professional diver, she also founded the Clean Cliffs Project with the aim to clean up the world one beach at a time. Plus, she runs the club diving team, Minnesota Diving Academy, and organized the construction of an outdoor high diving platform in Utah to improve training opportunities for high diving and with the realistic goal of seeing high diving in the Olympics. Well, welcome, Ellie. It is really great to have you here, and I'm super excited to find out about cliff diving because that's totally foreign to me. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about it because it is foreign to the majority of people. So any opportunity I have to kind of share my love of the sport, I'm so grateful for. Let's start with, like, what is it? I mean, and how did you get into it? It's a, a kind of long story, but to start, the main thing to know that is different about cliff diving or high diving, those words can be used interchangeably, is that it is double the height for the girls of the Olympic platform. So if you ever watch the Olympics or any sort of NCAA or USA diving, the highest platform is 10 meters, which is about 33 feet. In high diving or cliff diving, the women actually dive from 20 to 23 meters, depending on the location. So anywhere from that 66 feet up to about 76 feet. And the men pretty consistently dive at 27 meters, which is about 90 feet. So we are double the height, triple for the boys. And the second part is that we actually land on our feet. We do not ever go in the water head first. Um, in traditional Olympic diving, they go in hands first, but when you go above 10 meters, it's it's really important that you go feet first. Don't want to get hurt or do anything wrong. You recently posted on Instagram about how you were terrified the first time you did a high dive. Yeah, so... I dove collegiately at UC Berkeley and I actually quit diving. I never thought I would dive again in my life. And then my best friend at the time was like, let's go cliff jumping. And I'm like, cliff jumping, no way. At the time I was super girly girl. I had just gotten back from an internship in Barcelona and fashion and my life was nothing about outdoors adventures and so for some reason that night I just like couldn't 
go to sleep until I told her, fine, I'll go with you. So I texted her. I'm like, fine, whatever. Pick me up. I'll go with you. And this was like a four hour drive to go to this cliff and then just like drive back in the same day. But we went (laughs) and I like jumped off for the first time. And I mean, this was still like a, a... 30 foot cliff. So the same as what I was used to in traditional diving. But when I jumped off, I just had this like aha moment of like, oh my gosh, maybe this is what I can do next. Like I spent my whole life training for diving and never kind of got that end goal of, you know, making the Olympics. And so when I found cliff diving, I was like, this is amazing. But I'd only jumped off a cliff. I hadn't done any flips or any twists or tricks. So I decided to like investigate the community a little bit and figure out how to get involved. And I found a group of freestyle cliff jumpers and I went out with them to a local spot that was about 20 meters. And I was like, okay, it's now or never. Let's see if I have what it takes to do like actual flips. And I went up to the cliff edge and I stood there and I couldn't go. And I have never felt so disappointed in my life. Like I was just like, I I absolutely, I can't do this. I I don't have what it takes. This dream is just not, it's not gonna happen. Like it was a fun idea. And I went home and for the next three days, I just, I was so, I don't know, there was something in me and I was like so upset. And it was like, I needed, I needed to do it. Like, even if I wasn't gonna, continue to do it after I needed to do my first ever high dive just to prove to myself I can do it. So I got all the guys back together and a couple days later we went and I climbed back up to the top of this 20 meter cliff and I did my first ever high dive which really opened the doors for my career. But what I remember is it just it was life changing. It was like if I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or I don't know, whatever it could have been, it it felt like I unlocked something in myself that I had never unlocked before. And it was just the most magical, incredible experience of my life. And I still, it's, it's my favorite dive I've ever done to this day, just because of what it taught me about myself. And that's something that you don't have to be a cliff diver or jump off a cliff to, to get that feeling. You know, we can get that in other ways in life, but it's something, you know, I personally hope everyone gets to experience at least once. Do you remember, I mean, there's so much about getting up onto that platform and making the dive that is a frightening. I mean, for me, I, I watch even the clips of people climbing up to the platform or to the spot on the cliff that they're going to dive from, and that looks frightening. And then you're standing there on the top of the cliff and that looks frightening and taking that step looks frightening. So like, what were the parts that were particularly frightening and how did you end up making that leap? When I first started cliff diving, it really wasn't that big in the United States yet. And and honestly, it still is not that big yet. So we're, we're so grateful this Red Bull cliff diving event is coming to Boston so that we have the opportunity to share, you know, our sport and what we love. But when I first got started, I literally just went out in the middle of nowhere in Northern California with a couple guys and climbed up a cliff and like tried it. Like there was no water safety. There was no platform. There was no, there was nothing. I look back and I think, oh my gosh, like that was so scary. Like, how did I do do that? But at, at the time, there was no other way to like get involved in the sport and learn. So for me now, like going to a Red Bull competition, which can look very um, scary or dangerous, it's actually a lot safer than the average person thinks. I mean, we have all of the routes planned out about how to get to the top of the cliff. A lot of the times we're in harnesses. So if anything were to go wrong, I mean, you're 100% safe. And then when you're actually jumping off the platform or the cliff, we have water safety, we have scuba in the water. So if, if anything at all were to go wrong, you have every single thing that you need to make sure you're gonna be okay. The, the thing that people don't understand is, to me, it's not any more dangerous than an Olympic gymnast doing a crazy floor routine or vault or, I mean, even you look at these NFL players that are, they're giant and they're running and smacking into each other. It's the, it's a, the same sort of thing. Like, do I think that the average person should just walk up to a cliff that's really high and jump off of it? Absolutely not. But <laughs> when you get to the level that we're at, the risk is not necessarily any higher than any other sport 
that someone is doing at a professional level. Right. Yeah. Don't do this at home. Yeah. <laughs> or at least make sure you're educated on the, the right steps. You need to make sure that it's safe before you do it. Right. <laughs> so I want to go back to you being on the top of that cliff that first time. Again, do you remember, you know, like what was going through your mind that actually got you off the cliff? Or was it like all that prep the night before or the night after your first uh, sort of failed attempt? Honestly, when I walked up there, it just seemed like everything was kind of meant to be. It sounds silly, like as, as an athlete, you kind of hear about like a flow state where you're just kind of in your own zone. And I had never actually experienced flow state in any of my athletic career up to this point, but I would definitely say that was the first time that I had this, this state of, of being just aware of what was going on. And like, I felt comfortable with what I was doing and I knew that I was going to be okay. And when I stood up there on, on the edge of that cliff, it was like, I just had this appreciation for where I was and what I was doing. And I just, it was like, I, I knew I was going to be okay. And it gave me kind of that confidence to be able to, to go ahead and to try it. So your PR people wrote to me that at this year's Red Bull cliff diving tour, you're going to attempt the most difficult dive ever done by a female competitor. What's that about? So since I started high diving, my kind of specialty has been twisting. Um, so I was the first women, woman to do a back double with three twists. So I was the first one to do three twists. And now my goal is to do four twists, which will actually be the hardest dive ever performed by a female at a Red Bull cliff diving competition. I've been training it. I've been working on it. My goal is to do it in Boston, but there's really no pressure of when it's going to happen. I do know it's going to happen at some point, um, but I'm just putting in the training and the work to be able to do it when it's ready. Cool. I want to talk about your training, but before, you know, we've mentioned the Red Bull series quite a bit. So let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me about that series and, and how it's going to work. And also about this Boston event, which is going to be on top of the art contemporary art museum, which I think is so cool. It's amazing. I am so excited for this event in Boston. We haven't been in the United States for a little bit. And actually, back when they did do this event before, it was before women were included in the series. So none of none of us have actually been to Boston or competed in Boston. But all of the men who are still on the series who have been here before, like we still hear stories all the time about how just amazing the atmosphere and the crowd and the experience was of that competition. So I, for me, I'm like so beyond excited to come to Boston and compete in this event just because I've heard so many amazing things about it. What's it like competing in front of a crowd like that? Competing in front of a big crowd is not as bad as I thought it would be. Like at first I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be like so scared. But it gets to the point where there's like so many people that it almost feels like no one's watching you at the same time. So like when, when we're kind of in those smaller competitions, I find the crowd a little bit more intimidating. But then when you're in the competitions where there's, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people. It's like almost like there's too many people to even realize there's people and it kind of takes the pressure off. Do you think about, you know, like TV and, and media and stuff as when you're competing? I mean, I always wonder about that is like how much sort of um, observation impacts performance. Definitely. So for diving, it's obviously a sport that's judged. So you get a score out of one to 10. And it's it's not like, you know, let's say swimming, you touch the wall first, you automatically win. It's more like, you know, you hit the water and you made no splash and the judge gets to decide how well they think you did the dive. So for me personally, like I get way more anxiety about the judging, like the thought of someone telling me I'm like good enough edit I that does stress me out a lot just because it's it's totally out of my control but when it comes to the TVs and the cameras that that actually relaxes me and and it makes it almost more fun it makes it feel like a production and a show so it's less about 
the score that you're getting from the judge and more about this amazing show and performance you get to put on for the crowd. No, that's cool. That's a good way to look at it. I think I would get nervous. Yeah, like, but the the nice thing too is we have the same TV crew that comes to every single stop. So, you know, they're some of our best friends. Like we, I just talked to a few of them this morning. Like we keep in touch when it's off season. So when you're there, it, it actually feels more like a familiar face than anything. So it gives you that little bit of comfort. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, 2021 was the first year with the same number of men and women in the Red Bull Cliff Diving Series. And also the same prize money has been for the men and women since 2020. This is a huge deal. And the current leader, Rhiannon Ifland, was quoted as saying, for me, it's not about the money. It's about having that recognition and having the same exposure and feeling just as powerful as the men. For me, it, it's amazing to see Red Bull making those changes and, and adjusting. And I think a lot of people also don't, at least in, in my personal opinion, the men had this series going on for a lot longer. So this process of adding women and getting to, you know, equal pay, equal numbers, equal TV time, all of that, for me, like that did come together in a very short amount of time that like, I think is really impressive and just shows how much Red Bull really cares about equality. And so I am just, I'm grateful that it happened while I'm still an athlete and that I get to experience that and be on a really equal level playing field with, with the men. How does it work? Do you guys compete at the exact same time, like alternating back and forth, that kind of thing? Yeah, so we compete at the same time. The women do a round and then the men do a round. And then the women come back up again and do another round. And then the men do one more round. And day one, we do the first two rounds. And then day two, which is what is on live TV that everyone can watch, is the finals, which is another two rounds. So in total, we end up doing four dives that count for the overall ranking and score. From my perspective, the sports that end up equal quickly are the sports that the men and the women are competing at the same time on the same day in the same track and all that stuff. So it's awesome. You're right. It's awesome that Red Bull is doing that. Appreciate it. What's it like being there with the men? Honestly, it's so much fun. We're in a sport that is, I mean, it's dangerous as it is, and it's so extreme and niche that there's not that many people that do it. So when we're all together, we really truly are just a family. Like we're like all brothers and sisters in a way. We, we're best friends, we have group chats with everyone, we keep in touch, we're really close. And so just having the atmosphere of everyone combined together makes it so much more fun. And the thing about our sport too is, you know, the average person doesn't get up to 70 feet and, and try a somersault. So when someone does it for the first time, whether it's the world's easiest dive or the world's hardest dive, the community is so supportive because it's so about that like individual journey of pushing yourself and becoming the best athlete that you can be. So it's it's really unique in that way that it's super supportive. It's never like, you know, oh, competitive, we better beat this person or we don't talk to this person. Like it really is a family and everyone wants everyone to do their absolute best. Where are you now and how are you preparing for the competition in Boston? So I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been there for about five years and I train with Wimbo Chin. He's actually an Olympic coach um, and he's the head coach at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. And so I've been very fortunate to get to train with the college NCAA team this past season. So I've been training with him and then his graduate assistant coach, Shelly. And I've, I honestly have felt like I've made the most improvements I've ever made in my diving this past year, training with them and, and under their kind of training plan. So I'm, I'm really excited for this season because I'm going into it with a, a whole new approach than I've ever done before. And, and I'm excited to see what's going to happen. Oh, tell me about that. What's the new approach? So I think for me, something I honestly like really struggled with as an athlete is looking at, okay, here's this narrative of a Red Bull cliff diving event, or, you know, it could be whatever it was I was competing in. And I used to always 
I even subconsciously worry, like, how do I fit into this narrative? Where am I going to land? Am I going to be on the podium? Am I going to be good enough? How do I make sure, like, I keep my spot and I matter? And this season, I really have taken a new approach. And it's like, I'm writing my own narrative. And and Red Bull Cliff Diving is a part of that narrative. But I'm not trying to necessarily be a part of their narrative. So I've, I've kind of, like, given myself the freedom of, like, just letting go and whether I win or lose or, or however it turns out, like it's still my narrative and my story and I'm still proud of it. So that's kind of the approach I'm taking, which is a little bit different and scary for me to kind of like adjust my mindset to that. But I've just noticed I've become such a better athlete since I've taken that pressure off of needing to be the best in that narrative. And so now I actually, you know, fingers crossed, we'll get a few more podiums this season. Right. So you said that you noticed that you're a better athlete now. So like, in what ways have you noticed that? So I think that at the end of the day, to be the best athlete, you're going to going to be like, you have to truly believe in yourself and you can't rely on anyone else. And for me, it's I've just come to like, accept what my strengths and my weaknesses are as an athlete and I've really set this like goal of just outperforming myself and trying to be the best version of myself and and in doing that it's like allowed me to relax and when you're relaxed and your muscles can move and you're not all tense your your diving just gets better because when you're all tense that's when you don't do your dive exactly how you want it. And then you make these errors that you maybe wouldn't normally make in practice. And so for me, just like giving myself that freedom to perform however I am gonna perform has actually made me a better athlete and made my dives easier to do. Cool. So what is your training like? What are you like, what's your week like? My week is uh, pretty crazy right now, only because I also, I, I have, two full-time jobs also on top of diving. So it's it's a bit hectic, but in terms of training, I get up, I usually train in the morning between nine and 11 in the pool. And then later in the day, I will do about an hour gym session, strength and conditioning, whether it's at the pool or like in a traditional weights room. And then I'll get back in the pool for about another hour. So I try to train around three to five hours a day, five days a week. And what does the in-pool training look like? So the in-pool training is just at a traditional Olympic style 10 meter pool. So at the University of Minnesota, we have a five meter, a seven meter and a 10 meter platform. And so what I compete from in, in the Red Bull competitions is double that height. So we kind of train our dives in two parts. You have the first half of your dive, which is the technical flipping execution, like the, all the twists and the spins and the flips that you're going to do. And you train that head first as you would normal diving. And then you go up and you do the second part of your dive, which is the, for me, it's, it's called a branny and it's a front flip with a half twist. And that's that maneuver to transition you from going hands first over to your feet, which is how we land in normal diving. So in the off season, I'm training two parts. And then when I show up in Boston, I'll put those two parts together to make a high dive. Yeah, I was wondering about that. How often are you doing the high dives? So not very often. I haven't actually done a high dive since December. So it's been it's been a while for me. There are a few facilities around the world in Canada. They have an indoor 20 meters. So the girls um, on the Canadian team, they do have the opportunity to train 20 meters, you know, every day if they want. Uh, we don't have that in the US right now, not a permanent indoor facility where you could do it year round. So I haven't been able to to jump from that high. And I think for me though, it's also it's okay. I've done so many high dives in my career at this point that I don't necessarily need to do them every day to be comfortable or to, you know, learn new things. 
I've kind of gotten over that hump of understanding how to get over to my feet and what that airtime feels like. So for me, like what I need most in my training is just in that traditional 10 meter pool. I mean, I'll still, don't get me wrong. Like when I get up on the platform 20 meters for the first time, I'm going to be terrified. <laughs> I am every time. Like it is scary, but I, it's once you do it once, you're like, oh, okay, I know how to do this. So in Boston, when you get to Boston, like how many days do you get there in advance and how many high, you know, on the high platform will you do before the competition starts? So traditionally we have one practice day. So we arrive, we go to bed, we wake up, we have one practice day. And then the next day is the competition where you do your first two rounds and then you have an ability to practice after. And then the second day is the finals where you do your second two dives. So it can actually be really difficult, especially when the competitions are overseas. So it'll be really nice to be in Boston on my own time zone, like competing in my own country because I won't have that jet lag I have when I fly straight over to Europe and then get up on the platform. But so we really, we really don't get a whole lot of time to adjust or to practice. It's, it's really a quick turnaround from the moment you get off the plane to the moment you're competing. I would expect though that diving from the really high dives takes longer to recover from. So in a way, it, you know, like you couldn't do a ton of them anyway. Yeah, you know, we don't see people do a ton. Usually everyone does at least their one of their dives in warmups on the practice day. So maybe between four and six dives an athlete will usually do on the warm-up day. And then on competition day, we usually warm up one of each dive that we're gonna compete. So that means that ends up being like two warm-up dives and two competition dives. So a total of four dives. So usually it's around four dives a day that we do. And then we take a week or two off after a competition before we go up higher again. And what kind of um I guess, what, what are you having to recover from after a competition? Like, what's the impact of hitting the water and, you know, going through the competition series? So the thing that's interesting about high diving that um, I feel like is a little bit misunderstood is, is that our lower body is so much stronger than our upper body. And so when we are doing these 20 meter dives, to me, I actually get less sore than I get doing 10 meter hands first dives. So it's it's not necessarily as much about the physical soreness you feel. It, it's the mental like exhaustion because you really have to be so dialed in for for those dives that you're doing that it's like your brain just needs a break from from everything the day after or a couple days after. But physically speaking, um, because we're landing on our feet and our lower body can take more force and impact. It, it isn't significantly harder on the body than going hands first from 10 meters. That's interesting. What does it feel like to hit the water with your feet? When you hit the water right, um, it feels really good. It actually feels like nothing. You just go straight down and you know you know, you know you did a good dive. When you hit the water wrong, it definitely does not feel good. Um, if you go a little over or a little bit short, it can be very painful and feel like you're kind of hitting concrete a bit. But, you know, hopefully or most of the time, that's that's not how we land. <laughs> What's the leeway of getting it right and wrong? I mean, you said a little bit over or a little bit under. I mean, is it a little bit or like more like a big little bit? <laughs> <laughs> so it really just depends. Like when I first started high diving, um, I actually had a nickname, <laughs> um, DB, degree of butt, because I would fly <laughs> over and land on my butt over and over and Ugh. over. And everyone used to be like, how are you still climbing back up and, and doing another one? Like that was so bad, but I just loved it. I like absolutely loved it. So I mean, it does hurt, but it's like, I think when you grow up diving or, you know, in extreme sports, like for me, I grew up and I took a lot of smacks from the 10 meter. And so I was used to, you know, it hurts. I know it's going to hurt. And then in a couple minutes, I'm, I'm going to feel okay. I learned from a young age to like kind of bounce back, but, but you do see, you know, a range of mistakes. There's been a couple really bad ones that I've seen that have 
you know, they've been really scary and made me question, you know, why, why do I do this? Like seeing this happen to my friends is, is really, it's scary. It is scary when it goes wrong, but, but that's also a risk in pretty much any sport that you do. How do you overcome that fear or sort of block it out or, or what are you doing with that fear maybe? So when it comes to fear, we do have a saying that, you know, if you're not afraid, then you shouldn't do it. Like fear is good. Like fear allows, you know, it creates a physiological response in our body that allows us to be on high alert and give us that a little bit of extra adrenaline and focus, which is what you need when you're doing something scary. So being afraid and understanding that having a little bit of fear is actually a good thing is is key for any athlete who's kind of getting involved in the sport. But then it's also differentiating, okay, this little bit of fear is helping me. Now I, I need to control it and not let it hurt me. Because if you are too scared and then you start worrying about things that can go wrong, the chances are it probably will go wrong if that's all you're focusing on understanding how it's, it's good to be a little scared, but then let go of the rest of that fear is really important. And for me, what I try to focus on is just, I've been diving since I was five years old. Like I've, I've done a lot of these things thousands and thousands of times. And the number of times it goes right versus the number of times it goes wrong is so slim. And so really just focusing on the process and the the steps and remembering the training that I've done is just been key for me to kind of get over that fear when you're actually at that end of the platform and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is so high. Why did I pick this job? <laughs> right. Um, you talked about doing this four twist dive coming up, possibly in Boston, possibly some other time. How are you training that? So for me, I do the dive right now. It's a back double somersault with three twists. And I've been competing that the past five seasons. Um, I actually learned just the backflip two and a half twist to my feet. Like I've done that on a little one meter springboard since I was like 10 years old. So it's a very, like it's, it's in my brain. I know how to do that dive. Um, so what I'm actually doing is just adding one twist and so in training a lot of the times like i train on the five meter platform and i do one backflip with two and a half twists and then i land on my feet and that's the first half of the dive and then i add this brandy maneuver which is the second flip and the half twist to my feet so what i've been doing in training is i now train back two and a half twist and then i also train back three and a half twist to my feet so it's 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 really it's the same dive. It's just you hang on for one more twist. So it's not some brand new, like foreign thing that I've been trying to learn. It's very much something that I'm comfortable with and I've been doing for a long time. And as a, as a normal diver, you know, I did learn how to do three and a half twists before. So it's something I've known how to do for a couple years. I've just never kind of had that confidence in my ability to kind of actually consider taking it up higher. One of the things that you're involved in is getting a high dive in the United States. And there's one that's going to be going up or has just gone up for the second season in Utah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I started high diving, I mean, I, I was just jumping off cliffs and it was honestly so dangerous and it, there was just no way to get involved and learn in a safe environment. And so I actually, during COVID, I didn't know, you know, would I still have a a job? Would we still compete? Or it was like my time being an athlete kind of done. So I had taken a full-time job at a company in Park City, Utah. And when I was there visiting just to see if I wanted to get take the job, I came across the Utah Olympic Park and they had this aerial skiing pool. So like the Olympic athletes train in the summer off this like AstroTurf ramp into the pool with their skis. And they just happened to have this section of the pool that was like extremely deep and perfect for high diving. And so I, I know Trace Worthington, who is, he's actually the commentator of Red Bull Cliff Diving, who is a former aerial Olympic skier. So I gave him a call and said, you know, what's the deal? Like, can you do an introduction? And so he connected me with everyone at the Utah Olympic Park and I pitched the idea. And I actually pitched the idea in February and we got the platform 
built by June. I mean, it was really like a 10 year goal for me that came together overnight. Like I'm so grateful for everyone who supported the idea and helped make it happen. But we were able to build the first ever high diving training facility in the United States. And it was the first ever facility that had platforms that increased at two and a half meters. So basically what happens a lot of the time is you can get up to 10 meters and then you go to an event or somewhere and then you just have to try from 20 meters. What we did is we kept that same Olympic style format where you have five meters, seven meters, 10 meters, but then we just kept it going with two and a half meter platforms. So we also have 12 and a half, 15, 17 and a half and 20 meters. So rather than just having to take that huge jump, you can literally move up two and a half meters each time and do it and learn in a very like safe and controlled environment. And for me, that was something that was just super important and, and that really needed to be done for the sport because it, we are pushing to be an Olympic sport and that is the ultimate goal. And so to be able to have facilities where we can train athletes in a safe environment and also start training the younger generation is just so important. And I'm, I'm so excited that we're putting the platform back up. We're halfway done with the build right now. And then actually all of the athletes competing in Boston are going to come out to Salt Lake City for a preseason training camp. And we're going to, we're all going to hang out there before we head to Boston. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, you know, that facility must, must have made a huge difference last season. Who was able to take advantage of it and, and use the facilities? Last year, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it came together so last minute, but we had athletes from all over the world that came and trained with us all summer long. We had an athlete um, from South Korea, from Colombia, from England, some athletes from America. We had some Canadians. We had a, a girl from Chile learn how to high dive. And so it was, it was really cool being able to provide an opportunity for people who maybe would have never thought that high diving could be an option. Now it, it is. And actually, a, you know, a couple of those athletes who did their first ever high dives, they're coming back this summer and they're going to be learning and, and continuing their journey to see if they can eventually get a wild card on the Red Bull Cliff Diving World Series. So for me, honestly, it was just super special to like get to be a part of their journey and now see them like competing alongside me. It's awesome and it's super exciting. Did you get a lot of interest from sort of younger divers in the States? Yeah, so I actually run a club diving team out of Minnesota called Minnesota Diving Academy. And we have a bunch of kids who, you know, they're traditional normal divers, but my fiance and I were both high divers and we both co-run the team. And so over the past year or two, we've we've started teaching them, you know, how to do some high diving skills. And we actually have a few girls who, and, and boys, that are really picking it up quick and will be competing this summer at the first ever international junior high diving event. And so we're really excited to have them. And it's fun seeing them like I, so there's this drill that I actually just learned back in December on 10 meters and it's an inward double half and it's, I find it really scary personally, but I taught our, our girls the inward double half and they just go up and they do it every day and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's better than mine. I'm not going to have a job much longer, Right, right. Uh, but it's so, it's so fun teaching them. You know, I recently spoke to an athlete who's younger, she's 23 and she's a cyclist and she coaches young cyclists in high school and whatnot. And one of the things that she says is that she really wants to encourage women to do things that, you know, seem hard or they're not sure how it's gonna come out, you know, sort of not only do the things that you know that you're good at, but sort of push the envelope. It sounds like, you know, you're teaching that as well. Definitely, I think for me growing up, like, I was so obsessed with the Olympics. Like I would get in trouble in class because I would be practicing like my autograph or like every night in the shower, like I was doing my gold medal speech. Like that was just, that is what I needed to be fulfilled. Like as a human was like to win an Olympic gold medal. And then when that dream didn't come true for me, it was like, I had like a huge identity crisis and it was like, oh my gosh, I spent my whole life thinking like this is, what I need to like 
matter or have like honestly self-worth and and so getting into high diving and learning so much more about myself and what I'm capable of gave me a whole new perspective of life and and for me I try to I try to instill that in my athletes as well as you know it's it's more about what you learn from the sport than what the actual outcome is you know I what I remember most when I was younger is my friends that I made or the the moments I did a terrible dive and I bounced back and did a really good dive after, you know, it's those life lessons that that's what I remember. And that's, that's what matters. And so for me, like, I just, that's what I encourage with my athletes is being good teammates, being supportive and remembering at the end of the day, like these are lessons that you can take into your life in whatever you end up doing, whether it's diving or not. Yeah, I love that. You know, I think sometimes for people who don't have an intrinsic love of sports, don't really understand that, that, you know, I like sports, I like the physical activity, but I also like all the lessons that I learn and can take, you know, outside of sport. Totally. Yeah. You mentioned that you're wanting to get high diving into the Olympics. Like, where are you with that now? You know, right now we're at a very interesting spot where everyone is very supportive of high diving becoming an Olympic sport. Like there is a lot of countries, there's a lot of people involved in it now. FINA, the international governing body for water sports, has adopted high diving as an official discipline. So we have world championships, world cups, um, all of those main competitions. The issue is kind of just that it's a little bit, at least this is what I'm understanding, is that it's a little bit up to the host country to decide which events that they want to add into the Olympics and, and which events they don't. So it's kind of just getting our sport in front of the right people who can make that ultimate decision. And so this season, actually, with Red Bull Cliff Diving, we are doing our second stop of the series is in Paris. And the Olympics is the 2024 Olympics is actually going to be in Paris. So we're really excited because Red Bull is really helping us push along that progression of the sport by hosting an event in Paris because the Olympic Committee will be able to see what would high diving look like if they did add it to the Olympics and how would the event run? And they're essentially figuring out all the logistics to help us eventually get to that goal. So I'm really excited for that that competition and to be able to kind of show the IOC and the, the French Federation what high diving is all about. And then also like, it's just, yeah, like 2028 is in America and USA Diving is so supportive of high diving and they love high diving. So if it doesn't happen in 2024 in Paris, I'm, I'm pretty certain we're going to make it happen in 2028 in, in the United States. What are you jumping off in Paris? So it's a scaffolding structure and it's it's just built up from there's a 20 meter platform and a 27 meter platform. So it looks very similar to what um, we have in, in Utah. So it's not off a cliff or, you know, anything like that. It, it really is a traditional Olympic style platform that we'll be jumping off of. Into what? Um, I believe it's into the river, but I okay. don't, they haven't, I, they haven't released the official location yet. Okay. Well, let's talk about Clean Cliffs, and you can talk better about the mission and what you're doing. Yeah. So I started Clean Cliffs my first season of high diving. For me, I mean, I've, I've, I've said this before, but when I didn't accomplish my ultimate life goal of going to the Olympics, and I was so just disappointed and felt like all of this training was for nothing, I knew when I got involved in high diving, I wanted it to be for a bigger purpose or to matter and have something bigger than just myself trying to win a medal. And I didn't know what that was gonna be at the time. I'm from Kansas City originally. I didn't grow up around the ocean or water. I honestly just traveled to diving meets as a kid. Like I didn't travel much and then within two years of being a high diver, I'd been to 40 countries. Like my life significantly changed overnight when I started doing this. And one of the things I started noticing as I was traveling was just plastic pollution was everywhere. And that was something, yeah, I learned about it in school, but you know, I'm a Midwest girl. I, I didn't ever see that for myself. And then when I started going to competitions and, and realizing it was a real issue, 
I kind of was like, okay, maybe this is this is what we're, we're going to do. And so I decided to start Clean Glyphs. And it started as really just like a little passion project. Let's get a few of the divers together. Let's do a cleanup at every location we go to. And let's just give back to the beautiful spots we get to go to. And, you know, I, I honestly didn't really know if anyone would show up when we did our first cleanup. And then all of a sudden, all the divers came and and then people from, you know, Red Bull and from outside and from, you know, just spectators started coming and it turned into something such like bigger. And right now, like we're really looking at what the future of Clean Cliffs looks like and what the ultimate vision is, because I mean, I really had no idea it was going to turn into something um, this big with with such support. But it it feels great to be able to give back every time we we go to these incredible locations. It's amazing on social media, you you show how much you're picking up. It's it's a ton of stuff. It, it's crazy. I mean, we did a cleanup in Lebanon, and it was it was insane. And and a lot of people, you know, I do get the argument. Oh, like, well, when you when you clean up, what does it really matter? It's just, the trash is just going to be there again. But what I find is just showing it on social media, and especially having like sports personalities and and people who aren't necessarily like environmental activists you know, going out there and doing it. It's it's the message that people see online and like the number of people that have told me, oh, you know, I've seen what you've done with Clean Cliffs and I've seen your cleanups and I've stopped using the throwaway coffee mugs or I started bringing my own bags to the grocery store. Like I, I get that all the time. And for, for me, that's what it's really about because there's, there's always that argument of if you just do cleanups, you know, it just ends up there again. But but it's the the spreading of awareness that that then affects other people and their habits and their behaviors, which slowly ends up making a big impact. What I find interesting when athletes get involved, you know, like you, like a lot of the athletes that I speak to who are, are water sport athletes, you know, they do find the water so important. And, you know, they're the ones that are seeing it. You're the ones that are in the water and seeing how big the pollution problem is. And, you know, some of the skiing people that I talk to, you know, they're really involved in climate change because they're seeing that where they normally ski has really changed over even their lifetime, their sporting career. So for me, that's what makes a big difference is because you are the eyes and ears that I can't be because I don't go to those places. Yeah, and it's it's shocking too. Like what I found, I remember the the first time like it really hit me that, you know, focusing on kind of plastic pollution was what I wanted to do was when I was in Greece and we were just cliff jumping after a competition and and it was beautiful. Like if you would have stood on the cliff and looked out, you would not assume there was one piece of plastic anywhere. Like it did not look dirty. And then I did a dive and I kid you not, I came up and I had a plastic bag around my ankle and I was like, what? Like it's, and it, cause it's things you don't even necessarily see. Like it can look beautiful on the surface and then a couple feet down, you know, it's, it's polluted and it's crazy. And so it, it really is, it's sad to see, but like, I also see so much hope in like how many people care and and how many people are willing to learn and open their minds and change their habits and for me like I was someone that knew nothing about the topic and I was guilty of using plastic forks and stuff like that before I was a cliff diver because I just didn't know and so now that people are really getting educated and and being able to see how much of a difference it can make it's it's really inspiring and it makes me want to keep doing it too. How have you changed your habits? I mean, you mentioned the plastic forks, but anything else? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that we do. Like, I mean, I never buy, I mean, there's certain places in the world where you have to buy water bottles just because it's not safe to drink out of, you know, taps in certain places. So I won't say I'd never drink out of a water bottle, but if I have the option not to, I do not, um, you know, bring bringing bags to the, the grocery store, reusable bags, cutting out any sort of extra plastic. Like I never use straws or, you know, plastic silverware. And I think one thing that that I actually learned that that I do now is when you sit down at a table at a restaurant or something, um, when they go to hand you a straw, if it's been set down on your table, they have to throw it away. So making sure like little things like, oh, I don't need the straw. 
So it never gets sat down on my table so that it won't get thrown away and it won't be used. It's, it's weird little things like that that you start to learn about and that just become like habit. Like I don't think twice about it now, but at the time I would have had no idea that that's how it worked. One of the things that I wonder about, you know, like personal, you know, changes is how big an impact that makes in comparison to, you know, organizations making a change. But it sounds like the plastic, for example, that you're seeing in, in the ocean that you're picking up is all sort of individual use. Yeah, most most of it is. And I mean, you see it come from everywhere and it, and it moves, you know, like I spent a month in Bali doing a clean cliffs project and and the amount of trash and like single use and just the crazy things we would find. It's just, it's crazy how it moves from one place to another. And it, it's not necessarily like, all that trash was like happened in Bali, like it happens and it goes across the ocean. Like it's, it, it's, it's crazy. It, it really is such a big issue and it, it just, it's getting more attention, but it, it definitely has a lot more that we need to do. Well, to finish up, you know, how do we watch this event in Boston? Like, what can you tell us? What do we need to know? Tell us. Yeah, so right now, if you are located in Boston, they are going to be releasing um, some more tickets on June 1st. So you can go to Red Bull, Red Bull's website and, and get some tickets. If you are not in Boston, you can watch it live. You can go to redbullcliffdiving.com or you can go to the Red Bull USA page and they'll have links that will um, direct you to the live stream of the event. But it'll be June 4th. And we are we are so excited to share our sport with everyone. Well, cool and good luck. I mean, I'm really excited that I've met you before the competition, so I have somebody to watch and root for. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. And that's our show for this week. Thank you to Red Bull for organizing the interview with Ellie. I appreciate their great communication and details. Thanks to all of you for tuning in to another episode of Hear Her Sports. You being here and spreading the word about my incredible guests make the work getting these shows to you absolutely worthwhile. There are many ways to keep the conversation going. Hear Her Sports is on social with the handle Hear Her Sports. You can send an email to Elizabeth at hearhersports.com. I always love hearing from you and respond. And if you aren't a newsletter subscriber, check it out. Between episodes, I write a few words about issues in sports, the podcast, and how to watch women's sports or follow along in other ways. Sign up at hearhersports.com. And until next time, bye-bye. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.